Hi, everybody. This is Richie Kanata, and you're listening to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. It's awesome. Welcome to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. I'm Michael Grosvenor. And I'm Jack Fernino. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's songs and history and what his music has meant to us. Thank you. Let me, uh, let me introduce the members of, the, uh, of this orchestra here. On, uh, on saxophones and keyboards, Mr. Richie Cannata. Here's an interview with Richie Cannata. That's it. No big intro. We just had a blast talking with Billy Joel's longtime sax, organ, flute, accordion, and piano player, and we're sharing that conversation with you. There's a lot of great stuff here. Deep trivia about Billy Joel tracks and live performances, stories about the Lord's reunion and post-pandemic shows, and Richie's takes on today's music and recording practices. Sit back and join us as we chat with Richie Cannata. I loved writing that intro because it was just the easiest, breeziest thing I had to write. And I was a little worried halfway through that we were downplaying the whole thing, but really I think it fits. So the story goes, back in early July, we reached out to Richie and some other people to get some interviews about an upcoming episode. We asked Richie the questions pertaining to that particular subject, and that episode's coming out in a couple months. And after that, dude, we just kept talking and talking, and it was so loose and so fun that... When we looked at the file again, we realized we had a complete whole other episode there. I sort of, I think more than Michael, belabor the point sometimes where I have to have a theme and it has to sound like, you know, fresh air with Terry Gross when I'm writing up my intros and everything else. (laughs) Um, But this one was just so fun that I had a blast talking to Richie. I even had a lot of fun snipping it all together for this final product. Yeah, it was a good conversation. I've met Richie a time or two before. Great guy, incredible talent. But this is the first time I've spoken with him at length about anything involving his career. We just had a great conversation, the three of us. And, you know, he was so generous with his time and really shed some light on, you know, his tenure with Billy and what he's been doing since everything about the Lord's 52nd Street. It was fantastic that we just had this additional 45 minutes or so of this great conversation. So now that we've hyped that up, we're going to read some emails. And before that, we've got some late breaking news. Yeah, this one is really exciting. This was actually just announced last week. Columbia Records and Legacy Recordings are releasing a vinyl collection box set called Billy Joel, the Vinyl Collection, Volume 1, and it's going to be out on November 5th. Right, and this is pretty exciting. We've seen Billy stuff reissued on vinyl before. Are these new uh, remasters or anything? Yeah, there's a little bit about it actually in the press release, which we'll get to in a second. But this is the first time the entire first half of the catalog was reissued by Sony proper. On vinyl, that is. Sony did The Stranger on vinyl back in 2008 when The Stranger 30th Anniversary came out. And 
Other than that, they've licensed reissues out to Friday Music, Mobile Fidelity Sound Lab, Music on Vinyl, and a couple other companies who have reissued some. But this is the first time that Sony Music has actually gone back and done proper reissues on their own. So not only is it a chance to get all those records all at once on vinyl, but there's also some great archival bonus material, which we'll get into in a moment. For sure. And I think this is a good spot to uh, read a bit of the press release, so to give you guys an idea of what's coming up. Billy Joel, The Vinyl Collection, Volume 1, to be released November 5th. Columbia Records and Legacy Recordings celebrate 50 years of the artistry of Billy Joel with the release of Billy Joel, The Vinyl Collection, Volume 1, on Friday, November 5th, focusing on Billy's 1970s material, from Cold Spring Harbor to Songs in the Attic, the definitive 9LP box set library includes Billy's first six studio albums and first live album, plus a previously unreleased bonus double 12-inch vinyl exclusive, Billy Joel Live at the Great American Music Hall, 1975. The Vinyl Collection Volume 1 arrives the same day as the first rescheduled concert in Billy Joel's extraordinary ongoing Madison Square Garden residency on November 5th. And it goes on to say, All titles have been sourced from the original album tapes and prepared by Ted Jensen at Sterling Sound. The box set includes a 50-plus page booklet highlighting Billy's early career through archival photos, an essay by Anthony DeCurtis, Billy's personal observations and insights on his songs and albums, and tributes from his fellow musicians, artists, and celebrities. And the Live at Great American Music Hall from 1975 is currently exclusive to the box set and will not be available on digital outlets. And again, rounding out the Vinyl Collection Volume 1 is the previously unreleased double vinyl bonus album Live at the Great American Music Hall 1975. This was recorded live at the Great American Music Hall in San Francisco in June of 1975. The live gig from the Street Life Serenade Tour introduces the earliest available recordings of future Turnstiles classics, James, and New York State of Mind into Billy's catalog and includes examples of Billy's loving imitations of Joe Cocker, Elton John, and Leon Russell, a staple of his early concerts. Real quick, I'll run down the uh, track listing for that one since you all by now know what's on the other albums. So we've got an opening track, then we have Somewhere Along the Line, Roberta, The Mexican Connection, Rupier Rag, James, Introduction of the Band Members, You're My Home, Joe Cocker Imitation, and You Are So Beautiful, Everybody Loves You Now, New York State of Mind, Benny and the Jets Interlude, Travel and Prayer, Delta Lady Interlude, The Entertainer, The Ballad of Billy the Kid, Ain't No Crime, and Weekend Song. So as far as we know, I've never seen this um, bootleg or any unofficial release before this concert. And there was a lot of, there was some questions going around as soon as this announcement came out as to why that show. And, you know, the big question was why, because, you know, this would be before the Lords of 52nd Street lineup. So not only is it an official representation of the original touring band, it will include Doug Stegmeier. And thanks to Mike Stutz over at the Retold page, he did a little digging and he found one of the Billy Joel biographies, some background on it. So according to the Billy Joel, the definitive biography, this was around the time uh, after Street Life Serenade came out, uh, after the tour, I guess. And there was uh, some question about the next album and who was going to play on it. So once again, you had the road band, including especially Reese Clark and Doug Stegmeier lobbying for the road band to be on the album. Of course, at this point, Billy was considering uh, using Elton John's band 
And of course, on Street Life Serenade, Michael Stewart, the producer, had opted to use session guys instead, which Billy wasn't crazy about. So one thing they had come up with was they would record, uh, we would, they would get some live recordings at the Great American Music Hall. And I guess that would be either for a live album or just as a sort of proof of concept, I guess, to show that, you know, this band could do it. But unfortunately, it's as those sessions were scrapped, which only increased the frustration, you know, meaning at that point, the band was getting pretty frustrated. So, you know, arguably what we're going to hear on this is, you know, if not the peak of that live band, certainly in the moments before it started to fall apart. We talk a lot about on this podcast transition points in Billy's career because it seems like every milestone moment is a transition for him between one phase and another. I'm so excited to hear this because this is really a snapshot in a way of the beginning of the end of that current band in 1975 because it was just six, seven months later, they were recording Turnstiles with Elton John's band and then shortly after that with the Lords of 52nd Street. So this is really interesting because there's not much floating around of that Street Life tour. So I'm really curious to hear how this band was sounding and what they were trying to prove to Columbia Records that ultimately didn't pay off. Yeah, we mentioned that when we did the, what was it, the Orpheum Club? Yeah, right before Street Life, yeah. Right, we mentioned that around then. This this era was so underdocumented, even in bootlegs, that it's going to be exciting to hear this. And you know, at this point now, you know, there's sort of an official release from every couple of years. We have Sigma Sound officially came out. Uh, this one will be pre-turnstiles. We have Carnegie Hall. And then, of course, from there, you would flip over to the official releases as they came out, which would give you Songs in the Attic, uh, and then Concert, and then the Millennium Concert, and then Last Play at Che, and then 12 Gardens Live. And even if you want to get into the video end of it, you're going to have Live from Long Island, and then also you've got Live at Yankee Stadium. There's a lot of moments from each of these tours and each of these eras that were officially captured in some capacity, except for this, until now. Right, and I'll add Live in Connecticut if we're doing videos too, which would be pre-Stranger. The Turnstiles tour. Yeah. So again, this comes out November 5th. I haven't yet heard anything if the individual albums are going to be released, but I would have to think that at least everything but the Great American Music Hall are going to make their way to record stores in time. I know the box set is currently going for about $250 on Amazon. I was able to find it for about $210 on Pop Market. That's kind of the range I'm seeing right now. So it's certainly not the cheapest thing in the world, but I'm Absolutely excited to see how it comes out. Definitely. But in the meantime, let's read some emails. First one comes from Thomas from Minneapolis. The f- Thanks, Thomas. You couldn't be from Chicago. <laughs> the first one comes from Thomas from Minneapolis. Minia- Jesus. The- <laughs> Minnesota. <laughs> yeah, right? The Midwest. He's from the Midwest. The first one comes from Thomas from Minneapolis. Now you just sound pissed off. <laughs> Hey guys, I thought I would say a quick hello. Since you were clamoring for comments for a while, this feels like the right episode for me. Houston, number 36. So this is a, another one on the Houston 79 episode we did, which, man, this one's got legs. People yeah. Really connected on this one. So I love it. Anyway, I have a long Billy Joel cred. 12-year-old me went to see my first Billy Joel concert on October 16th, 1978 in the now-demolished St. Paul Civic Center. The Stranger Cuts are still riding high on the radio, and 52nd Street had just come out that week. Oddly, My Life was not released until almost two weeks later, so those cuts were new to all. That show made me a BJ fan. I was a perfect age, and it was a perfect tour and attitude. It was the first time he left the piano to sing Big Shot and climb the speaker towers, etc. 
From there, I saw every Billy concert that came through town for years, and this was the golden age of touring in the Lords. This was the era when you could sleep on the sidewalk of a record store and get front row tickets, which I did from 80 to 86. I was in the house when Street Life Serenader was recorded for Songs in the Attic. Oh, nice. Billy was the first act to play in the Minneapolis Target Center in May 1990. Check the archives. The sound was horrible. <laughs> the acoustics of the building were awful, and they spent money to make it better. I think I bowed out of going to every show after the 1999 tour, part used cars and part busier life. I did see Billy and Elton in Iowa for their first tour in 1994 and in Minneapolis in 2001, then back to Billy Solo in 2015. Some quick comments on this episode. Mexican Connection opener. If my memory is correct, and certainly the Google may correct me, Mexican Connection was the walk-on music for all the early concerts, I saw Until Chain Gang by Sam Cooke was the walk-on music for the Nylon Curtain Tour. And I so remember the handoff piano with Richie and Billy and Big Shot. Totally cool move. Obviously, over the years, Billy would be out front so much more, but it was so rare back then. Keep up the good work. I hope you both are enjoying the trek. Well, thanks, Thomas. That's a great email. Yeah, we appreciate you uh, jumping on the ride here and and uh, listening along. Um to see Billy for the first time the week the 52nd Street comes out. I mean, what a moment. Great email. Thanks again. I always love hearing from people that, that saw these old concerts as things were coming out. That's really cool that you were in the room when Street Life Serenader was recorded. Uh, curious if you were surprised that he was playing it and what you guys thought in the moment when he, when he broke that one out. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting to see how the walk-on music had evolved over the years with Mexican Connection being the main one for so long, uh, switching up to Chain Gang in 82. Mm. I don't know what he used on the Innocent Man Tour, but I know on the Bridge Tour it was Rhapsody in Blue. I can't recall Stormfront, but then River of Dreams on. It was uh, The Natural. This next one's from Stanley Darrer. He writes, You asked about my syllabus for teaching the Billy Joel class at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at NC State University. I only had three hours, so I tried to get in as much information as I could. I basically talked about Billy's life from teenage to the present. I used all of his studio albums in chronological order, highlighting a few songs and talking about what was going on in his life at the time. I included playing about a dozen songs over the two classes. I did include videos of a Jimmy Kimmel interview and an interview from Stony Brook University. I mentioned in my first email that I made several changes to my program after learning a piece of information or two from you. I threw into my class a little piece on Michael Kavanaugh and Young Ki Joo that I heard on your podcast. I also threw in the video of Billy on Sesame Street after you talked about Billy needing some time off. I concluded my class with the Tony Bennett introduction at the Kennedy Center Honors and a video of scenes from an Italian restaurant live from Long Island. By the way, concert number eight for me will be Billy's return to Madison Square Garden in November. Stan. Awesome. Stan, thanks for writing in again and getting back to us and letting us know. Uh, we read Stan's a couple episodes back where he mentioned that he was teaching this class and had included some extra information, so we were curious about what that was. Enjoy the garden in November. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And how cool to, uh, you know, that he included some of our uh, our conversation with Hyun Ki and Michael uh, in the curriculum. Yeah. I tell you, those two were so fun and we learned so much ourselves that it's just really cool to get to shed some light on it. And, you know, everyone, you know, who listened, you know, got to learn hopefully some new stuff as well, like you did. 
Yeah, those two were great about filling in a lot of blanks on a couple spots of Billy's career that aren't too well documented. So we have two more quick ones here that wrap up a little more of Houston 79 for us. Alec Crawford writes, Hey guys, you were trying to figure out what song the beginning of my life sounds like. Not sure, but it sounds like Elton John's I'm Still Standing to me. Great podcast. And Kara Avon writes, Hi fellas, he did do Get It Right the first time, as I have a 30-second clip video, which actually comes from a TV documentary I think was called Billy Joel World Tour 1981, with the 30-second clip appearing at 8 minutes in. The video footage is an extremely poor transfer from VHS to DVD, but it's all I have. I hope you guys find this useful, and if you manage to source the video footage for Get It Right and Scenes from an Italian Restaurant, would you be kind enough to email me a copy? Thanks, man. This is pretty cool. Yeah, check it out. It's definitely in there. That does open up a slightly larger dimension to this show where uh, on that episode we were kind of wondering about why it was recorded and edited down if it wasn't released. Cool. Well, And this next one is from Connor Carey. He writes, Howdy, guys. I wanted to start by thanking both of you for entertaining me and giving me a fresh and new take on one of my favorite artists. I'm a high schooler from Birmingham, Alabama, and I discovered the podcast during my last semester. A great way to kill time in pre-cal. Since then, you guys have been my go-to for the background of car rides and the odd jobs I've surrounded myself with this summer. My dad was and is an avid listener of Billy, and he has done the great honor of passing his music down to me. He'll remind me of his glory days of buying turnstiles in the cutout bin or paying $9.50 to see Billy during what he believes to be the Nylon Curtain Tour, which pissed him off considering every other show at the time was $5.50, according to him. Other than my dad, you guys are the only people to match that same enthusiasm and interest in Billy, and there is always something new to take in whenever I listen. With that said, keep it up, and I can't wait to see what is to come. All right, thanks a lot, Connor. I feel like I should admonish you for listening to a podcast or music during class, but damned if I didn't do the same thing through my entire high school career. <laughs> right. Though we didn't have earbuds, we could easily uh, hide. Well, I had long hair, so I used to snake it up the back of my uh, shirt. And then oh. I had like a tape player that would keep flipping. So I could just be sitting there. And then like if it came to the end of the tape, I'd be like, <laughs> and try to like mess the, the mechanical sound of the tape going back and oh, forth. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> $9.50 for a ticket to see Billy Joel, which pissed him off because everything else was $5.50. That's the kind of trivia I love. Just little stuff like that is awesome. These days, nine fifty is a fraction of the service charge. Yeah, right. Connor, it's awesome that you're a high school and you're into Billy. I love it. And I followed up with Connor real quick because it occurred to me since he lives in the South, you know, had he seen Billy before? What has he seen? Check this out, man. He says, uh, my only live experience was Phil Collins still not dead tour in 2019 in Duluth, Georgia. He'll be seeing Hall and Oates in Genesis later this year. Oh, nice. So, man, this, this, guy's, this guy's an old soul. I love it. Well, I think we've kept this whole thing on ice long enough. Let's roll tape with Richie Canada. So it's nice to have you on. We're, uh, we're glad we could uh, do this. 
My pleasure. Once the turnstile sessions were done, was there a point when you knew you were going to stick with the band and go on tour? Was it always an idea that you were going to be with the band or did you go in just thinking it was going to be a studio project at first? Uh, Billy came to see me with a couple other bandmates when I was playing in New York and he wanted me to join his band or at least play in the Stern Styles record. And I went to Ultrasonic Studios to see what they were doing. And at that point, Piano Man was his biggest hit. I was wondering where I was going to stick you know, my saxophone and his music. He played me the basic track for New York State of Mind and said, uh, I would like for you to play on the song, of which once I played on that song, I knew I was in and I knew I wanted to go on the road and stay around for a while because <laughs> it was a lot, a, a big part for me at that point to play the saxophone solo for New York State of Mind on the Turnstiles record. Once then we started to do that, uh, we went out to Colorado Caribou Ranch to do my parts and Billy's parts, the vocals and saxophone. Once we were out there, we were ready and geared up to go on the road and do something. So it was pretty cool. Immediately when we started playing, it was great. It was a lot of fun. And I wanted to stay around. There's no doubt about it. Prior Billy not having a saxophone player in the band, what was your process like revisiting the older material that wasn't necessarily recorded or written with that in mind, adding yourself into those old songs? I had to think about it and we're going to put myself in. That's why I played keyboards. I found myself playing keyboards on uh, The Entertainer and uh, some of the other tracks that were there on Piano Man and all those other, other tracks. So I fit myself in there. And then we started to develop. As you can see, the big records had more and more saxophone in them uh, because I was there and I was participating and giving what I could for the band. But before that, there was maybe one saxophone solo in one of the songs. Probably, I don't even know who it was. I, I tried to find out and was just a, se a session player. Thusly, the other things that I did for Billy on the road, I played, you know, B3, I played an electric keyboard, I played a grand piano, I played accordion. I made myself valuable with that by digging deep and going back. You know, like I played B3 on a lot of the stuff, but Ballad of Billy the Kid was all B3. A lot of those those songs before us. Are, and Billy's a B3 player too, so he appreciated it. I got to play flute and, and clarinet and soprano yeah. and alto, tenor. Yeah, it was kind of fun. I mean, I played clarinet on a scene Italian restaurant, on Moving Out, on 52nd Street. You know, I would have never played clarinet on a record, you know, with a rock and roll band. Oh, let's, hey, break out your clarinet. Woo! I don't think so. <laughs> you know, did you like have to do a lot about like learning the uh, accordion or get wrapping your hands around a clarinet or anything else? Like, were these all instruments you'd been playing and got to play? I started at four years old and, and it was they were all right there. Do I play accordion a lot? No, but I had to learn, you know, Vienna. I had to learn some of the, the accordion parts, but it's basically a keyboard on its side. You know, I wasn't playing any Irish polkas, you know, <laughs> things like that, but I learned the parts. Uh, clarinet was my first, my uh, second instrument. Key, uh, piano was my first. Clarinet was the second. So uh, I, I just picked that up. Billy asked me to play that. And I just went ahead and did that. So it was pretty cool. So the story goes, Billy was looking for somebody that played saxophone and organ. I think Michael and I were once talking about that. Like, was that a common combination to have a horn player that also played piano or organ? Or were you just like the unicorn? No, no it, it wasn't. You know, uh, first of all, saxophone and keyboards is one thing. But remember, there wasn't a lot of keyboards back then. There was either acoustic piano or that big, ugly thing, the B3. Who had a B3? Nobody. Had. It was hard to lug around an 800-pound keyboard, you know? Right. But I happened to play it, uh, and I don't know how it was. I was in a band that had a B3 player, so I would play that. I knew the instrument. 
it's not easy because of the drawbars. There's a lot of moving parts to it, you know, mm -hmm. but I, I just took to it and I was that guy. I could play B3 and I also could play acoustic piano. And then uh, I endorsed this keyboard, this electric string ensemble called Elka, which is this little, small, little box, little keyboard that, that had a, an organ sound, excuse me, a, a, a string sound to it. So, you know, mm -hmm. I, I just, I adapted all that stuff to a, to Billy's music. In early concert recordings of Just the Way You Are, you hear all those like really drawn out vocal harmonies and we would watch the bootlegs and, and listen to the recordings and it sounded like it was a sample, but we couldn't think of anything that would be available at that time, nor did it sound like, or nor did it look like you guys were doing the backups. Do you remember what that was? First of all, we did that in the studio. Remember there weren't, you couldn't create loops. It was all 24 track recording. So whoever sang the part, uh, it's just an uh, and then some guys would go off the mic and then somebody would grab the part. We'd get air, come back on mic. And it was just an, ah, uh, right. Yeah. Then that was recorded. I believe the dat was around back then or a cassette. I'm not sure how we did it, but we took mm -hmm. that. And when we played it live, the front of house engineer would play that and mix that in. All it is is an, ah, uh, it doesn't change in any of the, in the notes. It said, it's, oh. I think it's a fifth. It was a, a tonic and a fifth. Uh, mm -hmm. and that's all it was. Uh -huh. And he just in and out, in and out. So that was all Brian Ruggles working that. Yeah. I mean, he just, he made it loud and soft, but we, was that common back then? No, it wasn't. I forget what group air supply or one of those groups did something similar to that. And, and so we kind of jumped on that, but, uh, it kind of worked for us. It just did, you know, and even mm -hmm. to this day with the Lords of 52nd street, we have that sample as well right now. You know, oh, we, you do. we use that. Same one, yeah. Speaking of Lords of 52nd Street, if I remember what you said correctly, you guys kind of hadn't talked for, for a while and then and then reunited, you know, just, just being busy, things like that. What was it like, you know, getting back together uh, with Lib and Russell and, and running through those songs again? Man, it was the greatest thing ever. Listen, 40-something years ago, we made this music, you know, and mm -hmm. we were getting inducted to the Long Island Music Hall of Fame. And mm -hmm. so they wanted us to get this award, you know, with Doug, myself, Lib and Russ. So they asked us to play a song. So I'm the musical director. So I put the band together. Liberty mm -hmm. was totally against it. Didn't want to do it. <laughs> and we got on stage to do one song. We ended up doing four songs. Mm -hmm. Ron Delsner was there. You guys know Ron Delsner, of course, everybody. Oh, yeah. Ron mm -hmm. Delsner. Yeah. He said, Richie, come into my office this week. I want to talk to you. And I went to his office with my manager, Andy. And he says, you guys got to go out there and play. You just got to do that. So that was the beginning of it. And so I, I put a little bit different band together. I think we did one, re one rehearsal, if that. Wow. And it was like, okay, <laughs> we haven't played together in 20 years. What's going to sound like? And it was just amazing. It was a lot of fun. It was more than fun. We didn't have to prove anything. We just had to yeah. go play our parts now better. <laughs> you know, because you don't want to be, oh, they were good when they were 20. Now the guys are old farts. And, you know, <laughs> you know, in talking with Liberty about it, he wasn't in the best headspace at that point, as you mentioned. And, you know, he didn't want to even do it in the first place. And I think finally opening up to that and you guys starting to play together helped heal him in a lot of ways and fall back in love with it. That is exactly right. Whatever, whatever happened, you know, with Liberty and Russ and Billy is their thing. It never happened to me. Right. I've always mm -hmm. had a great relationship with Billy, right? Right. I think there was so much bad uh, vibe or something going on. Liberty forgot about how good the music was. Yeah. And once we started to do it and really play it, he, like what you said, he fell in love with 
the music again, he fell in love with the fact that this is really, really great music. And our band was really good. Yeah. I put together a great band. And mm -hmm. he started to go, wow, this is really a lot of fun. And to this day, one of the greatest things we've ever done. You know, if he didn't say it, I'm going to say it. It's the greatest <laughs> thing I've ever done to come back and make this music. The reaction has been crazy good. Crazy good. I think the last time I saw you guys was when you did the show in Bremerton here in Washington. You know, to do a one-off show in Washington, the crowd and the response was just so great to see. Like I said a little while ago, we, we have nothing to prove. The proof is in the great songs that were written and the way we, we recorded them. Then we went out on the road, of course. And back in those days, we were the band on the road and we were the band on the record. So it was really a double treat for our fans to see that, right? It wasn't mm -hmm. just Billy going out with a pickup band. It was Billy with this band that recorded these records. For us to now do that right now, you know, uh, it's it's really amazing to think about how many years later and how many original band members that the Lords of 52nd Street has got, you know? Right. You go to see Three Dog Night and there's only one dog night, you know? <laughs> Never a slam against Billy. I mean, he's still doing great, but you sound more like a Billy Joel show than Billy because oh, yeah, of the yeah, stage yeah. The representation on stage. I want to say this cautiously. I, I try to keep it the way we did it in the seventies. It's just us. You know, we don't need extra of anything. You know, we don't need trombone players mm. and horn sections. And it's all about the music. It's about a great lyric and the way we edit our parts to it. Yeah. And people really mm -hmm. like that, you know, mm -hmm. and it's all well and good. And I love Billy, man. He's my friend. You know, when he's on Long Island, he lives five minutes from me. I love him. I always did. Whatever he's doing, he's if he's got 25 people in the band, or if he's got two people in the band, I love him and I love the music. Do you have access to like master tapes or anything like that? Or are you just working off the, the CDs and stuff for the records? Uh, yeah, the cassettes. It was <laughs> 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 right around when electricity got invented. I go back to the uh, to the albums, you know, to the CDs. There's a lot, and I'm sure you guys know, there's a lot of this piracy where you could you can find a track and they can open up the track and listen to just guitar parts and, and vocals. I don't know how they do it. And if it's even legal and if it's even us, <laughs> you know, it is but, pretty yeah. crazy how some people have gone in and like reverse engineered it and been able to do that. Yeah. It kind of, I don't, yeah. I don't know where they're getting their, the sources. Yeah. It's crazy how they all of a sudden open up the tracks and it's just, it's just uh, Doug and Lib. I just heard something not so long. It was just Doug and Lib. How did they get that? You know, how did they yeah. get that man? Where, where did they go to the 24 track to find it? You know, right. I think I've seen in a few instances, um, uh, was a video game rock band. I think there've been a couple Billy songs on that video game and Sony or whoever provides stems for it, you know, like the full kit and then, you know, bass and a guitar, things like that. So they'll provide some sort of a breakdown of the tracks for these video games. Here's something you said. You said stems. Okay, think yeah. about it. That's that's a digital term that we use these days. Right. Someone have to go back to the 24 track. Right. Find the 24 track. Bake the 24 track. Yes. Play the 24 track, <laughs> and then take a stem off it. That's how did they do that? Or is it some type of technology where they there's something that there's a program or uh, that can listen to an album and then somehow EQ everything else out and just get the drums and bass. Yeah. I'm curious how they're really doing it. You're right. That's think that's about it, right? I just did a session this afternoon and I needed stems from California and they sent me the stems. And in 10 minutes we had stems. 
because right. digitally we could break it down. But there mm -hmm. wasn't those those words weren't even didn't exist back then. And 24 track wasn't really 24 track. It was 23 because one was Simpico. And, you know, because I remember even the stories yeah. of like, you know, a little later on the Innocent Man record when they wanted Toots Thielman on a song. Well, they grabbed the tapes, got on a plane to Paris to get him on the on the, on the recording. <laughs> Freddie Hubbard. That was exactly what happened with Freddie. Uh, we made a slave of the 24 track. And that was then flown out to California, I think by a person. I don't even think, I'm not sure if, if they even put it in the mail or anything. I think somebody actually flew it out there. He played mm -hmm. on it and brought it back. Yeah, it might've been Phil who went out there and did it. I, I gotta, I'm gonna find out. Jim Boyer is still around, uh, one of the engineers. He might know. We had talked about trying to get in touch with him one day because um, the stories of, you know, a lot of the production and mixing on these records that, you know, hasn't been talked about much. I'm sure he's got some great insight. He would. He was there the whole time. Him and Phil and Brad Lee was another one. You might want to contact him, you know, him, Brad Lee. Yeah, we spoke to him a few months ago. He, he was awesome, right? Oh, yeah. Well, he yeah, he had all, you know, all these stories. I think he was... I think it was like he was working the session, but not like in the room for 52nd Street. But he remembered, you know, a lot about Glass Houses and Innocent Man. Talked about the, the trip to Russia, things like that, too. John Bradley was the first engineer on the, I guess it was a 16 track that was out of the studio in Hempstead. And then John mm -hmm. Bradley went to Caribou Ranch with us. Mm -hmm. But those were the first engineers. After Turnstiles, when Phil jumped aboard, that's when the Jim Boyer and Bradley jumped on with us. And you were doing session work before Turnstiles? Yeah. Had you been doing albums and things or just kind of dates? Uh, I, you know, I was, and re, and remember, horn player, okay? Uh, I was in a lot of sections, you know, mm -hmm. but uh, uh, I'm a saxophone player for Billy Joel. I'm the guy in those records, and that's a different position than being a horn player. I was a horn player before Billy's thing. You know, I did call to be in, it could be a, a commercial for a Chevrolet, you know, and I would I would be on a recording session, you know, but... I didn't become that guy like Clarence became that guy. Like I became that guy when I joined Billy. Right. right. Uh -huh. So it was way different. All of a sudden I was getting a call to read ink in a session to do for a commercial. I was getting calls to do solos like I did for Billy. It was another whole, you know what I'm saying? It was a, I became this person, you know, with my sound rather mm -hmm. than just a horn player. They like your sound that they're hearing on those records. Now that's what they want for their project. Right. Player Richie Kanata solo. Yeah. Right. Right. And, and, you know, and before I, uh, I was in the studio making records, but in sections, you know, maybe I'd get to blow a little bit of a solo, but not, not like, look, look at Seamsman Town Restaurant. Look at that spot I got for that. You oh. know, it's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. And you were writing all your own solos. Did you have a direction on those or was that just your spot and do what you wanted? None. Uh, and they were all one take, at least one take, maybe two takes. There was one time, here's a good story for you. It was before the still rock and roll solo. I had something in my head that I was going to play. And Billy says to me, play something that people are going to remember in 20 years. And I said, 20 years? You know, I'm 20 <laughs> years old now. It's double my freaking age. Right. What are you talking about? 20 minutes from now. Yeah. And I went out there and played that solo. That was the first take solo. And that's the solo you hear on still rock and roll. And that's when he goes, all right, Rico, right before my solo. Was it challenging to, to all of a sudden, like come up with a sound that you could replicate or was that something you had before going in? Because like you said, you were, you know, just to be mostly in sections and things before that. I had my sound already mm -hmm. and I was studying with this guy, Joe Allard and David Sanborn and Michael Brecker was studying with them. They were older than I was, right? Mm -hmm. they, uh, 
And Michael had said to me, don't worry about trying to find someone else's sound. Be who you are. Mm -hmm. Be yourself. And and I channeled that. I I remember that forever. I I remember to this date that I'm just going to be me and not trying to sound like John Coltrane or Charlie Parker. You know, I just got my own sound and I stuck to it. In my career, I've I've had two mouthpieces and two horns. I I, I basically use the same horn for the last 40 years. Whether or not I'm playing the Star Spangled Banner at Yankee Stadium or Star Spangled Banner for the Glen Cove Little League, whatever, it's the same horn, same mouthpiece. I've been true to it. And it's paid off. Look, we're having this we're having this (laughs) podcast tonight. Absolutely. (laughs) Conversation about it, yeah. Speaking of recording, we spoke with Evan Toth a few uh, months ago, and you guys all recorded with him. Um, how is it getting back in the studio uh, with with Liberty and Russell? Great. Liberty DeVito is one of the hardest hitting drummers that I've ever <laughs> played with. It's it's amazing. And is, there's no BS when it comes to Liberty. He gets behind the drums. He leads with his chin. It was really great. And Liberty and I, I don't know what he told you, but we've been doing a lot of work together. We just did 40, some 50 songs with a client from out of state. Yeah, uh-huh. This guy, Jimmy Lee Hook, uh, Fort Lauderdale and Cincinnati, he goes back and forth. And we just cut like almost 50 tracks with this guy. Wow. It was amazing. Yeah. Really? And Liberty was at my studio. I have a studio on Long Island. Yep. Yeah. And Liberty and I have been, we've been, we've been doing stuff for people who want a rock and drummer and rock and saxophone. And we've been, Tandeming this this whole thing, it's been a lot of fun. You get Liberty DeVito and me; it's a pretty good combo in the same room. Yeah, you know, yeah, you're not kidding. Yeah. So to answer your question, to get back together with Lib again, it was like it was the greatest thing again to do it. You know, it was so much fun mm-hmm. again to do it. Russell has not done a lot of recordings with us, but he's been in uh, when we do the Lord stuff. He's in. It's great yeah. being with my friends and brothers. It's really great. Where are you guys? You guys both out west? Where are you? I'm in Philly. I'm actually on the West Coast. I'm in like north of Portland, Oregon right now. I, I just did something at Parks Casino. Oh, yeah. What was the project? I sat in with this this father and son that did this. They're really great musicians and they do an Elton Billy face to face thing. And yeah. they were celebrating the music that I did with Billy. And I was the guest saxophone player. And have you been to that casino? Yeah, I've uh, I saw Herbie Hancock there, uh, I guess, two years ago now. Beautiful, right? Yeah, the theater is really, no, really good. That was built for yeah. Elton. Do you know that? Was it really? Is it because a long story about why he was there and why they uh, they put they put it together? But uh, Terry and, and Nick were the two guys, and I came in and they they were celebrating, you know, Billy's music and Elton's music, and they said, well, the songs that that I contributed was a lot of the hits, right? And mm-hmm. then I walked on stage and played all the hits. It was pretty <laughs> yeah. cool. Well, was that recently? Yeah. Man, I still pass my radar. I'm gonna have to yell. A friend of mine uh, works there, actually. I'm, I'm I'm gonna yell at him now. He didn't tell Who, me. Nathan? <laughs> no, no. Uh, this guy. Uh, I think they work up like the they work like the lights or the the crew or something like that. Okay, ask ask yeah. about it. It was really amazing. It really was. Yeah, the place was great, and I never knew that place exists. And it's not so far outside of Philly. Yeah. No, yeah, it's right in Ben Salem. Yeah, yeah, Ben. That's the place. That's exactly right. Thumbs up to the people that ran it too. They ran it. A really great show. They were ter- they were terrific. I got to watch their calendar more now. <laughs> that one slipped right past me. <laughs> well, next time I'll call you. Reach out for sure. We'll be there. I'll be there at least. 
my studio is a big freestanding uh, studio. It's a recording studio. It's not someone's basement with Mm -hmm. a microphone and a windscreen. I was very vigilant on the protocol for for COVID. And so was Liberty. My clients were as well. And the ones that came in were all tested. And so that's why Liberty, during the pandemic, Liberty and I did those 30, 40 songs, actually close to 50 songs. We had Mm -hmm. a couple of different segments during the pandemic. The major thing that I did during the pandemic I also did a lot of saxophone work for people, which was pretty cool. They mm-hmm. would send me their tracks that they were working on, and I would go ahead and play saxophone on them. Then I would tell them, you know, I could probably make this sound better if we were to mix this or add this. So back and forth remotely, it, we got it done. So I survived. We didn't. Nobody helped us, though. No, nobody helped us. You know, I could take out loans for four or five percent, but no one gave me any money. Nobody gave yeah. any musicians anything. But I, I got through it. And right now the, I have label projects and we've been really busy these last two months, really busy. I feel like with so many people not being able to do what they've wanted to do over the last year, year and a half, I think there's an influx of people like really wanting to get back to things. And so I think people are really itching to record and really itching to play live. I think it's going to be so busy for a while with so many people just wanting to get back to it. It's amazing how... All of a sudden, the, the phones are ringing from past clients to new clients and those who had really messed up during the pandemic and tried to record because they bought gear. Then they, all of a sudden they hit a brick wall and going, wow, we, I'm listening to this guitar track and it sounds like there's a truck driving by. Well, because you had the window open <laughs> right. in your apartment and there's a truck on your track, yeah. you know, so yeah. we're doing a lot of undoing of that as well. That's funny to think that you guys got a whole bunch of like homemade tracks that you're able to to work on now too. It's like this: if I if I bought a dentist chair, would you let me drill your teeth? No. <laughs> if I bought a scalpel, would you let me take your appendix out? No. <laughs> so you buy a Pro Tools rig? Should you be making records and producing records? No. No. I mean, you know, yeah. here I've got Pro Tools. I've got some microphones. I'm a musician as well, but I'm not cutting a record. If I'm gonna make a record, I'm gonna go to people who make records. <laughs> It's easy, bro. It's division of labor. You know, I'm not going to program drums when I can call up Liberty. I'll call him up tonight. He'll be at my studio tomorrow. And that's a lot of what they're getting when they work with you. It's like they've got, you know, 40 plus years of all of that. And another funny metaphor. Well, it only took Liberty 45 minutes to cut that track. 45 minutes and 50 years worth of experience. Yeah, there's a reason he can do it that quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah because he's been playing for 15, for 50 years. I think Evan was telling us too, it was just like Liberty hadn't heard, really heard the song, but he just knew what to do on it. Like there was just never a question. He just did it. The instinct. Yeah. yeah. How's it been getting back out? I know you guys did a couple of drive-in concerts during the pandemic. They really sucked. <laughs> they were horrible. I mean, yeah. we played one that was almost three, 400 cars. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking into the audience and I do, I do all the talking and introducing and I, how about a big beep for our keyboard player, you know? And so yeah. the lights would go beep, beep, beep. And, the, the yeah. car, the, and so they had control over the volume in their vehicles, right? Oh, for, okay. Then it's just a mess. And, yeah. yeah. So, they, you know, they're getting high, eating freaking, you know, chicken cutlet heroes. You know, you go to a show, you sit in the audience, and we got you for 90 minutes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? We're going to entertain you. You can't make it lower. You can't You can't dim the lights. You can't. You can't fall asleep in the back seat, you know. Right. And that's what right. those those car shows were. They just, you know, they had mm. the volume control. They, you know, one of them we couldn't even have a, a PA. 
no front of house PA. Really? So we had side fills. Yeah, we had side fills. Do you happen to know what the reasoning was? Just like to, to not attract other people or? During the pandemic, they came up with the most stupid freaking reasonings for everything. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. You know, Fair I enough. think because, <laughs> I don't know, because if the, this, the PA system would have attracted more people and more people were not allowed to go there because it was COVID protocol. I don't know. Right. But they just mm -hmm. said no PA system. So there was yeah. side fills and everybody dialed into the radio station. And that was it. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's just so weird. It's like playing a Ford dealership. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you guys have uh, dates coming up? Yeah, we have uh, our first date is coming up on July 30th, uh, Long Island, Glen Cove. It's my hometown. So we're tying it into News 12. It's a big deal for us. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. uh, Glen Cove's a city. They've named the street after me there. So we're playing on my street. Oh, that's nice. Nice. I like that. Pretty cool, yeah. man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And is this the first show with the new, um, your new singer piano player? No, we, we, we've we done some shows with them. Matter of fact, Liberty, myself, Dan, and, and Malcolm just did something in the Hamptons two weeks ago. Lord's oh, cool. Light gig. You know, we just got together and mm -hmm. we did. The, and, but he's he's played with us before. He's done uh, in Boston. He's done a show with us. He's been okay. in, in, somewhere in Pennsylvania. He's played with us before. I played oh, with him a lot. Mm -hmm. Oh, great. He's awesome. He's awesome. I've got no doubt with the seed, what you've, yeah, yeah. you've had, you know, in the fold over the years on this, it's a, uh, you know, you're going to get a show and I, I'm not just saying it because I'm yeah. talking to you. It, you're going to get top shelf players. Did you bring him in then uh, saying that you would play with him before? Yeah, I played with him before in some other situations and I saw his talent and then he asked for an audition, whatever that means, but he came and mm -hmm. said in a sound check with us and I thought he was really good. I work with him to learn all the songs. You know, think of that chair, man. It's just not singing the songs. It's also playing those parts that Billy did. Those are very intricate piano parts. He did his homework. It's always tough. That, that chair is very tough. And yeah. I'm not letting anybody sit down and not do it right. And you uh, don't have a lot of liberty. You, uh, well, that's a bad word. You don't have a lot of leeway. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> right, right. You got plenty of liberty. We got plenty yeah. of liberty. <laughs> My ears are still ringing from the first time I saw him play, like, in his house. <laughs> There's no leeway. You either do it this way or I'm going to find somebody else. And they all they mm -hmm. all get it. They all get yeah. it. And it, it really is worthwhile because you've got to respect the music. You've yeah. got to respect Billy. There's a window where I can open up the back of a song or something, you know, and then let somebody play a little bit or solo longer somewhere, you know. But sure. for the most part, the singing and playing has got to be pretty tight. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the middle part of Scenes with Italian Restaurant, you know, is, is tough. The, the left hand in, in stiletto is tough. It's mm -hmm. all tough. Oh, yeah. Billy had right. a very unique style of playing. Yeah. You know? yeah. I mean, we were listening back to CW Post, too, and it just the, the amount of improv he was doing and singing at the same time, when you sit and listen to it, you're like, that's like Hendrix-level uh, um, stuff there. CW Post was freaking awesome, man. That was such yeah. a great show. That was recorded by WNEW, I think. Was mm -hmm. that right? Or, or WLIR. Where'd you, get, where'd you get WLIR and then and then out to Philly, yeah. And Philly, and you know our connection with Ed Shockey, is that his name? Yeah, yeah, Ed Shockey. MMR, he broke uh, uh, Captain Jack for us. Talking about these old shows, it got me thinking. Um, they did the the vinyl reissue of the Carnegie Hall show a couple of years ago for Record Store Day, which was fantastic. Now, did you all have any involvement in in that, or were you contacted when it was going to be released? Obviously, since that was you know one of your shows. We got contacted right after we did the show 40 years later. 
<laughs> right. We we're supposed to do one night. We ended up doing three or four. I can't remember. Pharaoh mm-hmm. came there, flipped out the first night. The next night, he brought the record plant truck, truck and recorded us. We never, ever heard a playback until 30-something years later. Wow, really? Uh, and you want to know some guys? I think I heard it when the box set came out. Oh, yeah, the Stranger one. That was, yeah. that, that was the time that I heard those tracks. And my mom and dad were alive, and Billy mentioned them their name at the end of Say Goodbye to Hollywood with Liberty's parents. Mm, that's right. Uh, it was like, it was, it was amazing. And then uh, when I did New York State of Mind, we had an orchestra behind me, which was mm-hmm. really cool. Mm-hmm. Oh, we yeah. had an orchestra for a, for a bunch of the tracks. Yeah, you're right? right. And we never heard it back. Never. But you know something you think, oh, we just played Carnegie Hall. It just didn't happen right. for some reason. And none of us cared, I yeah. guess. In retrospect, you, you, yeah, it's, it's funny to think about it like that because it's such a you know, well-known show now. What's interesting to me, you know, Dylan and Springsteen, there have been so many live shows released over the years and so many great things dug up from the vault that as far as Billy's concerned, it has been quite minimal comparatively. That was management. That was that was Elizabeth too. Elizabeth had a lot to say about that in the beginning. Really? Yeah. She kept a tight, mm-hmm. tight knit on all that stuff. And so did Billy. Billy was just very you know, dogmatic about that as well. Because I remember, you know, reading yeah. like Glass Houses tour, you know, all the shows that you guys recorded for Songs in the Attic. I mean, you've got full shows that were tracked that are just sitting somewhere. Phil or somebody, I don't know who it is, they brought 24 track machines out on the road with us. Yeah, that was pretty interesting. I'm kind of happy that they're not a lot. You know, there's, if you go to some of the stuff we did in Europe, the old gray whistle test, that's a good one. So, you know, and, and it, it just shows that you could have 50 shows that are recorded. We might have five and they're all good. They're all really good. Now I'm really happy that we did. We did one in Connecticut. I mm. forget the name of that one. Uh, Billy Joel tonight. It might've been called. Yeah. Billy Joel tonight yeah. at the college there. Uh, the the bottom line was recorded by NEW, but that wasn't that wasn't film. That was just an audio. That was yeah. a pretty good one too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but we were good all the time. Billy was freaking on all the time. Every night it was something different. Every night he did something and we had fun with it. You know. Yeah. yeah. He's an amazing musician. He's a strong icon of pop music and will ever be. And we're the band. And here's something: in a hundred years from now, everybody's going to be different. Okay. Who are you going to mm-hmm. remember? You're going to remember Billy, Liberty, Richie, Doug, Russell. We were the guys that did those records. There are so many tribute bands. There are so many guys that think that they are Billy or they are Liberty, but they're not. They're not. And yeah. we're still alive. Doing this music is better than ever. It's something to be said. Think about that. Think about that. We've gotten to this point. It's freaking amazing. We've, we've figured it out. We stayed alive. Yeah. Part of the blessing of all of you having stepped away from the Billy thing for whatever length of time is now that you're all back, that that fire is there and you're you're having so much fun with it, which, you know, yeah. had you been still doing this forever without a break, that spark may not have been back. You know something? I, I uh, produced uh, Tommy Shaw from Styx, his solo records, and we went out on the road and Tommy said to me, I will never ever be in a sticks band again i said i will never ever play billy joel music again and here <laughs> sticks is led by tommy Shaw. and lords of 52nd street is led by me it's just like well okay that didn't work out you know? <laughs> right right because good music prevails bro it good does. music yes. just yeah 
it rises you know, up. And there's not a lot of, lot of it that, uh, you know, not a lot of bands that are, that are still doing it. Billy sells out the gardens still. He's, he sells out stadiums still, right. you know, yeah. because of the music. And that's what's unfortunate about, you know, the last 20 years of artists that have come up. If you look at the artists who can still consistently sell out the arenas, it's still the Billys, the Bruces, the U2s, the Metallicas of the world that have been together mm-hmm. for 40 years. That's you know? right. Yeah. And why? Because mm-hmm. good music, it's good music. It, it, it prevails. It's, and it's not a matter of connecting dots to, to create a curve. It's not digital bullshit. It's really analog live music. Yep. Check this concept out. Get into a room, play in time, and sing in tune. Wow. I know. That's such a lost art with so many people. (laughs) You can't melodyne it. You can't beat detective it. You can't cut and paste. You can't do one chorus and run it through the... No. You have to sing and play in tune and play in time. And then look at each other. I'm looking at you. Come on. Let's make some music. And those are the things that, if you go back to our record collections, why they can still sell out a Coliseum today. Right. This, this homogenized digital set, because you buy gear, is, it's, a, it's, a, it's an entertainment form. It's a, it's a form of entertainment, but it's not music. As, and even go back before us, when Sinatra would go into a Quincy Jones session, and Quincy has 40 guys in the room, each one playing one note at a time. Sinatra walks in, 47 microphone with his fedora on, maybe, maybe a headphone, maybe. And, and cutting those tracks and freaking singing, bro. Next thing Quincy says, let's go to lunch. <laughs> yeah, right? I think it even starts spilling over to live music. I think people are so maybe not tired of a DJ, but like if you put a, just two people playing live in a room, the, the response to it is really crazy. Especially for, for like young kids. Like you play to like 20, 22-year-olds. They react as if they've never like been in a room with people actually playing music before, like just acoustic and drums or something. And the thing is, we're human. We're touchy. There's, at some point, you got to touchy feely and do that thing, you know? Yeah. And, uh, these young kids sometimes that have never experienced that because they don't have to because it's everything's on their their phones. So they see two guys playing music. So wow, what is that? Put you know, show them a different instrument. Show them a trombone or a saxophone. <laughs> they don't know what the hell it is. You right. Know? Yeah. Be in the room when a horn section plays and you'll understand why we go to concerts. You know, That's just right. we're not hearing that on record. That's a that was a big thing for me, I think, too. You know, first time like we're actually playing with a horn section, you're like, oh my God, this is, you know, the air is moving around me. It's so uh, different. Uh, oh, pushing air is a good term that we use. You're absolutely right. You know, last yeah. night we did a tape transfer of uh, Janice Joplin and uh, Big Brother and the Holding Company. We had some old tapes that a client got. And we took the tapes and put them to a hard drive, right? Mm-hmm. We were sitting around listening to this stuff, man. It was, it was music. It yeah. was all these guys just playing. It was just nothing else but just their axes. Whether or not they were out of tune mm-hmm. or they right. played a little fast or a little slow, it was just perfect because it yeah. was imperfect. Yeah. Right. Now when we make records, it's shifting it, putting it on the grid, making sure yeah. it's, it's this and this. You know, and, and what it does, it right. takes everything that's you that could be unique about it out. Out. I was in a studio recently, and it just worked my nerves a little. How I mean, you gotta do what you gotta do, but it was just like, well, we need this like hundred and ten percent on the click. I'm like, yeah, I'll do it, but like, is it getting too much to yeah, expect that all is. the time? Is it getting out of control? There's ways to play to a click or play with a click. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, and with these producers, when they're listening, they're more looking at what's happening on the grid. Take away their screens, for, for God's sake, and listen to how the drummer or 
You play behind the beat a little bit. You're in a pocket. It's called a pocket. Right. And that's okay to be. You can't take one of our records that did with Billy and 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 do a click to it because it, it'll yeah. last when it'd be two bars, three bars, four bars tops. Yeah. You know, <laughs> right. it's like you, you're in a room and you see yeah. you see a good looking girl, your heart beats faster, or it's just emotion. When you were doing that session and they were saying, Man, you gotta be hard to the click. Okay. And if you're not, they'll just beat detect you anyway. Anyway. Yeah. I know. It just gets to the point. It's like do they think that little of the listening audience that they're going to get queasy if you go off a, a metronome? Or is it just about the technicality of being able to overdub later? It's that staying on the grid so they can overdub or they can cut and paste, you know, yeah. just to make their lives easier. Mm-hmm. You know, the 40, 50 songs I, t- yeah. I did with Liberty, you know what the metronome was? Lib. Liberty. Yeah. Liberty. Yeah. And this guy said there was, there was no click. We all played our parts. And if I did a horn part in the middle of the song, I had to do it four times. Because each time it was a little different. Right, right. It, the tempo was a little mm-hmm. bit slower in the first verse than it was in the third verse. Yeah, yeah. You know, but that's yeah. okay, man. Yeah. yeah. I remember even Liberty saying, he's like, occasionally there'd be one to get us started. So we knew where to come back to if we did another take. But that was, that was we it. Never, we, there was never a clip. Yeah. You know, never. 150 million records later, I think we did pretty good. I think so. I think that's a ringing endorsement. You guys just squeaked a buy, you know. (laughs) Did that method influence you when you opened your own studio and and got into producing, like being in a situation where, because you guys pretty much track live from what we've heard. Well, I'm on my 39th year there. So when Mm -hmm. I started out, I had a Neve console and a student machine. That was it. So there wasn't any digital format. I I started the studio before there was the ADATs and the Fostex and, and, uh, uh, what came up that then Sony came out with a digital machine. I was yeah. there way before that. So my mm-hmm. first records there were 24 track, simply code on 24, and away we went. Mm-hmm. And I and what you needed was real estate. You needed that room big enough with ISO booths so you can get people out in the room to make that mm-hmm. music. Yeah. You follow yeah. me? Yeah. So then then we changed with every um format that came in and was horrible remember those adat machines you guys old enough to remember them? i do they were freaking I, horrible terrible like a vhs cartridge yep yeah and they never see yeah, the up. dat tapes yeah always horrible bro yeah always problems we're doing uh analog recorders uh, uh one of the guys in, in the lords has got a little country band and we just did 12 songs to tape with him uh, was that with yeah. dennis? dennis dennis yeah it was great ask him about it did, I are you will, gonna interview yeah. him? We definitely plan on talking with Dennis for sure. You mm-hmm. asked him about how he did his his record at my studio. It sounds unbelievable. But he went in there like we're gonna set up and play. Yeah. And that's mm-hmm. what they did. It makes all the difference in the world. Jack will always know I go off on Metallica tangents a lot, but when Metallica did their black album, Bob Rock, who produced them, is like, you know, I've listened to your old records, I love your old records, but you've never captured how powerful you are live, and I want to do that. So his whole thing was getting them all in a room together and playing together for the first time. We referenced that for Dennis too. that record. It says it all, you know, yeah. mm-hmm. yep. but if you go back to, you know, to uh, Eagles records and uh, John Fogarty records and yeah. where they played live, that was the magic. You know, mm-hmm. I was in the car on a serious radio listening on my serious radio and a David Bowie record came up. There were more mistakes on this track. And it was the most perfect thing I've heard in a long time. Yeah, I did a close listen of, I think, like Young Americans and uh, maybe uh, Rebel Rebel. We like chart it and learn it real quick. I'm like, dude, these guys are 
definitely just sitting in the studio all together doing this. Like, there's no way this is over. You could just tell just the way they play it is, is different. I think that'll prevail. And, and I'm getting more and more younger players that are coming in. But un- unfortunately, what they're finding out is that you actually have to be good to make a record <laughs> like that. Right. Yeah. You know? You've got to know how, you've got to know how to play. You can't buy a chord progression online and it's not the you know, same. And if you, and if you mess up, you got to do another take. And you're back at the bitter end now too, right? I started my first night last Monday packed. It was crazy. Uh, <laughs> that's so good to hear. And that's how I get back. I tell people I've been doing it 25 yeah. years, come up on a stage, make a mistake, have some fun. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm going to direct you through the song. I'm, and if you're really soloing well, you're going to solo long, you know? Right. Yeah. Uh, if you're having trouble, I'm going to, I'm going to cut you off. <laughs> yeah. We're yeah. going to have fun. Yeah. You know, yeah. you know, it was good on Monday night. I had about 10 young horn players, maybe 12 students that walked mm-hmm. into the place with their horns out, ready to play. Yeah. It was great. That's and they awesome. were from the new school or they were from um, Clive Davis. Yeah. Um, so it was really, mm. it was really refreshing having young players come in and, and, you know, if you're a horn player and you come to my jam, I'm going to get you, you're going to come up and have some fun with me. Dennis came down. Oh, did Dennis, he? Dennis oh, played cool. with me. Yeah. Yeah. Liberty, Liberty goes to bed at seven 30. So he's, He's not gonna come. I know he's so early to bed yeah. now. <laughs> he's he's the he's the mom, bro. He is. He's watching May. He is. Yep. He gets up every morning and takes care of her. I remember when I, last time I saw you out in the city, uh, we were chatting. He's like, "All right, I gotta go home. I gotta go to bed." He's like, "He's like, all right, <laughs> yeah." Uh, I'm up late. I I practice from I practice from ten o'clock at night till about two. Yeah, I go back to the studio and I do that. Uh, you, you know, Ben Platt. He's a Broadway guy. He's, yeah. Anyway, I, he's, uh, his record comes out in two hours, and I played on it, the single. Uh, it's a new record. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, Glad to be sad. Hmm. It's the name of the track. Yeah. It's a pop record, but not really. You yeah. Know, this month, we've had in uh, Sean Mendez. Tori Kelly was in for a week. She was awesome. Oh, was mm-hmm. she? Yeah. She was really. And John Bellion, I don't know if you know who he is, but yes. uh, he's been in producing records and writing, writing songs with us. He's been He's been tremendous. And Bill, if I'm not mistaken, you did a little bit work again with Billy on River of Dreams when he was doing that record. At Cove did, City. At Cove City, right? Leslie West was in on that too. Yeah. He just passed, you know that, right? Yeah. Billy, uh, uh, when he's in New York, he's either out in Southampton or he's, he's on Center Island. Mm. And Center Island is literally 10, 15 minutes tops from my house and the studio. So he's in the area a lot. Yeah. You know? with his motorcycle and he's he, he loves long island and i tell you what on the personal note this to see him in uh liberty rekindling the friendship that, oh, that was amazing yeah. thank thank the thank the lord thank the skies about that we did uh you know i recorded liberty's book you know that did liberty tell you that i did yeah the audio yeah. it's it's great i loved it and we did that at cove city and uh uh billy uh wrote the forward and recorded the forward. I mean, I get mm-hmm. teary-eyed listening to it. It's just, I'm so happy for those guys. And now yeah. they're friends. They talk about everything, not just music, everything right. about their kids, about yeah. the weather, whatever, you know, that's really great. He and I were hanging out a lot when things started to go south with them initially. And, and it just hurt me to see that like these two friends were split, like gig aside. And so the fact I'm like, ah, uh, 
they have their friendship back. I'm like, that's the most important thing out of all of this. Isn't that true? You Think know? about it. Who cares about yeah. all the other stuff? Right. What about, our friend? what about the stuff that we did together? Why can't we be friends again? And they did. They settled that out. And they, they sorted it out and they're friends. And I'm so happy for them both. Uh, both of them are better people because of it. 100%. Both, both could, of them. Yeah. Yes. They're, they're much better people. I, I, I've seen it in Liberty. Liberty's a changed man. He took this monkey off his back, man. And he's just really happy about life. And, and, and Billy, what we need to do is we need to all play again together sometime. I would really love to see that. That's everybody's dream at this point. Yeah. But wouldn't it be fun? Right. Yeah. I'm working on it. I'm going to try to make it happen somehow. Yeah. Well, <laughs> let, let, let us know. I'll, I'll, I'll make the trip out if it comes together. I'll walk up if I have to. <laughs> you get out of the pike and you're here in two minutes, bro. Oh, yeah, yeah. exactly. I, I got down. It took me four hours to get to Philly and an hour and a half to get home. It's like on Depends a Friday on afternoon, I left to go down to Ben Salem. It took me uh, like almost four hours. Oh, my gosh. And then after the gig, I was home in an hour and a half, two hours tops. Yeah, you beat the Belt Parkway, you're good to go. The Turnpike's no problem. The, the Belt Parkway. <laughs> <laughs> What a joke. What a joke. It's it's why am I on this road? There's, you know, I, I could get out and walk faster. Well, Richie, I got to say this was, um, you know, we've, we've been wanting to chat with you for a while about a lot of things. And I, I really appreciate you coming on and, you know, talking with Jack and I, this is, this has been so much fun. You got to understand one thing, guys, we'd love it that you guys have paid attention. It makes a big difference to us. It really does. Because you wonder, you do all this stuff and go, does anybody really care? You know, there are some people out there, but you guys do, you know, you know, the, the journalism part, the music, both of you are, are musicians. So you get what we've done. And to be talking about music that you recorded so many years ago, you know, and I did, like I said, I got a Ben Platt record coming out at midnight. It's not like I didn't do anything in, in, in the 40, after the 40 years, you know? Mm -hmm. Sure. But absolutely. We appreciate you that you understand and, and, and and like what we what we've done. Thank you. No, that that means a well, lot. And that was a you know a big yeah. reason that we wanted to do this. We just felt that uh, there is so much underneath these songs that hasn't been documented over the years. Just there are so many stories to be told about you know the songs and the band and all these records and tours that just you know we've just been feeling honored to put some of this stuff on the record and you know get it out there and have these discussions. And like I said, a hundred years from now, everybody's going to be different, but they're going to remember these records because yep. they're going to be around for a while. Yeah. You know, you see how things shake out and yeah, Billy's going to be one of those guys that definitely sticks around. There's, there's no doubt about it. Oh yeah. yeah. Just the year we've been doing this. I mean, we've listened to these records inside and out and I'm going back and listening to them now. And it feels like the first time just us hearing from, you know, we, we've talked to Liberty. We talked to Young Ki Ju. We talked to, to uh, Bradshaw Lee. And like every time we talk to you guys, like it makes the records new to us again. It makes it like it's so fresh and exciting all over again. It's a blast playing this music again. It really yeah. is. It's a testimonial to good music. Oh, man, what a great conversation. I tell you, every time we get to talk to somebody either in the band or somebody 
involved in the production or anything like that. I always come away with some really cool tidbits that I, I'd never, never known before. Yeah, this one especially because we got to ask him just random questions and he had all the answers. And how about that? Still rock and roll to me. The first take is on the record. So many of the solos he took were either simple but memorable or really good, but he made him sound easy. It's easy to overlook how technically adept he is on a variety of instruments, but also that he's not just, he's far from not just a technician. You know, he's got such a connection to the soul of whatever's being played that really came out in this interview. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a big part of the Richie Kanata sound, I think, too, is there is so much soul there that he really has such a unique sound that I've never heard out of another player. And it's just unmistakable. His saxophone parts, especially, they are so musical and so lyrical. These solos are so melodic and so pleasing to the ear and have such memorable hooks on their own. These parts are so hummable, you know, 40 years on. How about that? Every night, 10 to 2, and he's practicing. That's inspiring. And that's why he's still playing with all these artists. And he can get as much work as he wants at this point in his career. Yeah, I just love the fact that he's woodshed at one in the morning. I mean, how how awesome. All right, so uh, chime in. Let us know what you think. Let us know if you have any other questions you'd like us to ask people in the future. As we can, we'll ask. Is there anything new you learned from our conversation with Richie? I tell you, we uncovered some cool things that I didn't know. I'd love to hear what some of the uh, stories that he told were intriguing to you. And, you know, some of you uh, old school fans, you know, what are some of your experiences seeing Richie live? I uh, unfortunately was not of age to go to live shows between 1976 and 1981. So I never got to see Richie play with Billy back then or, you know, on the 2006 Madison Square Garden run. But I've had the good fortune to see the Lords of 52nd Street many times since then. These guys are playing like they did back then. And so I feel like I'm getting to step back in time when I see these guys live. Yeah, for sure. So right into us. Uh, you can reach us again, as always, at glasshousespodcast at gmail.com. And we're all over Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you search Glasshouses Pod or Glasshouses of Billy Joel Podcast, you'll find us there. Your comments, your messages there uh, mean a lot to us. So keep those coming. Oh, and in the spirit of this one, then, tell us your favorite Richie Kanata memories. Have you ever met the guy? Have you ever sat in on his jam sessions or just really noticed something cool he was doing in concert? Let us know. And we'll see you next time. And again, we want to thank Richie Kanata for taking the time to talk with us. So generous with his time and has some incredible stories. So Richie, thanks again. And we'd love to have you on anytime. 